Vincent Bugliosi, the man who put Manson behind bars, and Patty Tate, sister of one of the victims. We'll also hear from Sandra Good, one of the original followers, and learn why there's a new breed of worshippers following in their footsteps. Charles Manson is my role model on the Bertice Berry Show today. Charles Manson. For most of us, the name alone evokes fear. He made us realize that no matter how rich anyone was, that we could no longer be safe. Today, you're going to meet people who say that Manson is a leader. He could even be a role model. For the first time on TV, they will face the sister of one of the victims, Patty Tate, and also the man who put Manson behind bars, Vincent Bugliosi. Let me introduce our first guest. This is Sandra Good. She goes by Blue, a name that Manson gave her. She was one of the original followers. And George Simpson, who has recently been visiting Manson for the last three years. Let me start with you, Blue. You say that if the whole world would follow Manson, that we would be a better place? Well, let me clarify something. I never considered myself a follower. Manson particularly didn't want followers. He said, have faith in yourself and follow your own heart. But he has influenced my life, and I feel that my life is good because of him. Um, he would be a, a fantastic role model for the country. He would give the children back to themselves. He would give the kids back to themselves. He wouldn't brainwash them uh, with the BS that kids nowadays are brainwashed. The system and school does nothing really but put children's mind in the money. Mm -hmm. The love of money is destroying the planet. What we were all about was to save our air. Our, we have an organization called ATWA. Mm -hmm. It stands for air, trees, water, and animals. Hello and welcome back. This is episode 39 and today we are going to talk about Charles Manson again because I have learned so much over the last week. I was starting to research um, Anger, Kenneth Anger, who is associated with uh, doing a lot of underground, nasty uh, film work, which we will touch on him. He's not worth the whole podcast, I'll tell you that. But <laughs> Manson is worth two, I'll tell you. Because this guy, I'm starting to think, was more set up than I thought. As I told you all, my first podcast with Charlie Manson, when I was shocked to learn that he wasn't even at the murders. Out in the desert. Nobody was, nobody was kept anywhere. People were free to leave as they did. You can even check in his book. It's replete with stories of people. When the goings got too heavy, they left. Manson didn't force anybody to do anything. Everybody had their own free will. Those were distinct. Everybody at that ranch had their own personality, their own mind. She said earlier, Manson made the country aware that the rich people weren't safe. It wasn't Manson. It was the children of the middle class that went into those houses. Right. You can shake your head. But that's the truth. Manson wasn't there. He wasn't even in town for the week before those murders. That idea came up out of the but mind right of middle-class kids, us a wake and up that's call? what people can't stand to we listen were. to. So they have to put it off on an ex-con and make this whole story, oh, our kids couldn't have done that, so it must be this guy that's Mr. been Bilios. in jail his whole life. Well, okay, before we talk about Mr. Biliosi, who she just mentioned, who is the one who made millions and millions and millions of dollars off of writing Helter Skelter, which is, was hopefully to start a race war. So the Beatles wrote a song, I want to say the year before the Manson quote-unquote murders, 
and it was called Helter Skelter. And the Beatles like to think that their song made Charlie Manson start the race war. But we all know who's really starting the race war. I was born in 1978, and there was no... I didn't grow up in racism, and I lived in Boise, Idaho. And there were not that many people of colored skin, but if they were there, nobody was mean to them. Not in my schools, nowhere. My best friend from kindergarten until she moved to New York was black. Like, I didn't even think about skin color until the media put it in my face. And I'm sure many people are like that. And then, I mean, still, we're in 2023. They always tried to do this every election season. You will see the whole everything it's just it's crazy guys we all bleed the same we got to quit with this race war thing and this this goes all the way back to charles manson it's crazy to me so let's talk a little bit about his early childhood just touch on it i might have in the last podcast i don't remember but he was born to um a man who was 10 years older than his mom his mom is 15 so that would make the dad 25 i can't really confirm if his parents were married or not, but either way, um, it says that the dad was a laborer at a dry cleaning business and his name, never really heard this name, so I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but the way I read it is Colonel Scott. So this is findagrave.com. Colonel Scott, Charles Manson's birth father of record. About 14 months after Charlie was born, Colonel and his first wife, Dorothy, had a son named and named him after his father. On April 19, 1937, the bastardy suit filed by Kathleen Manson in 1936 was settled in Kathleen's favor. So, he was obviously the dad. The colonel was ordered to pay a modest amount of child support for Charlie. In 1940, another son was born to Dorothy and colonel. In, 19, in April 17, 1941, Dorothy Scott sued colonel for a divorce and won. His drinking problems, abusiveness, and non-support issues were brought up in court. Dorothy won custody of both boys. Colonel Scott dies in 1954 of cirrhosis of the liver at age 44. He was survived by his second wife and his two sons. So, they yeah, that basically they don't claim Charlie. So, born to a 15-year-old, 25, 14 months after his birth, he's already married to somebody else, having kids, naming his kids after himself, and just you know, he's a quote unquote bastard child. So by the age of 10, Charlie ends up in, um, basically prison and is raised in prison from the age of 10, which is very young. He looks like he spent one year living with an uncle, which I think for all accounts he enjoyed. His mother sounds like she was also an alcoholic and sold him for a pint of beer, according to a police report. Um, so yeah, Charlie had a brutal, life. Now, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but he was also a very good guitarist and guitar player. And lo and behold, someone that was in prison with him was associated with Universal Records. So when Charlie Manson got out of prison, he ends up going within three months and working for Universal. I bet you guys didn't know that, or maybe you did. And he was recording an album. Yeah. So I'm going to play you more on that, but before I do, I want to get into this prosecutor because I believe this guy was so involved. And I also want to talk about Sharon Tate because everybody talks about pregnant Sharon Tate. And I was doing a little research yesterday and I don't think when 
these guys started their lies back in the early, you know, 50s, you know, Disney lies and all the lies. I need to do a podcast about Disney, but every the media, right? The media is to control the mind as we found out in 2020. There's, you know, people don't believe what they see in front of their face. They believe what the media tells them. And Charles Manson is a huge case where people hear that name and they associate him to evil when they don't even know anything about the case like he wasn't there. That's a big deal. And this prosecutor keeps comparing him in this talk show that I'm going to play you guys more of to Hitler. He's like, yeah, well, Hitler loved children too. No, he didn't. He put him in gas chambers. Charlie wouldn't do that. He saved the kids as much as possible. And that also is going to bring me to this movie that's out right now. I don't know if you've heard of it in the other countries, but here in the U.S. there's this movie called The Sound of Freedom, and it's supposed to be exposing child sex trafficking, which I hope it will do because I believe God will bring all things to good. But when you start to look into who funded this movie, um, the Tim Balliard, the guy that supposedly saves all these kids in Operation Underground, he's obviously a Freemason. It's on his Instagram. He's wearing a tie with Freemasonry symbolism with the G and the Freemason. He has his hands like the Freemason. So then he's asked, well, who funds your movie? And he says, Carlos Slim. Well, he's uh, the Mexican, like basically drug cartel. Uh, he's one of the richest men in the world, according to Tim. And he's associated to guess who? The Clinton Foundation. So this movie's made $40 million as of this weekend. And where's the money going? And are they really going to save the kids with it? You know, it just sucks. So once I found this out about Tim, who I used to like and admire, I'm like, man, you really can't trust anybody, can you? And it pissed people off to find that out. But it also it made me realize how many people still idolize people. And they still think, like, he's, he's good. And like, he, the symbolism is their downfall. They will show it. They can't help it. They have to show it to each other whose side they're on. You, it's so easy once you find it to see it. As a matter of fact, I just saw the boy lover sign that's on the FBI page. It's this, like a swirly thing that they have on everything, toys, diapers. Um, it's in the prices, right? Symbol. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I just found that today. Ah, it's just everywhere, this vile darkness. And it comes from the top. It doesn't come from the bottom. The top is... The bottom are just the ones that they want to pin on it, pin on people. And so um, when I started researching Sharon Tate, who's this movie star that was married to uh, this guy who is Pulowski, Roman Pulowski. He was uh, convicted of raping a 13-year-old. He fled the United States. He never served any time for that. Now he's posing with her as in the last couple of weeks, which I think is really weird. And um, the Sharon Tate thing is very interesting because, she, one, supposedly Susan Atkins was the one who was at her murder scene and was accused of murdering her, right? So the story with Susan goes, she was in jail for killing someone, supposedly told on Manson to these two ladies who got a reward from Pulowski, and then she retracted her statement. She spent the rest of her natural life in prison and got married twice in prison. But the interesting thing about her is before she even met Manson, guess who she's involved with? Anthony LaVey. Yeah, the Satanist that we've talked about in the last episode. If you haven't heard it yet, go listen to it because it's kind of like a four or five part episode. So 
how this all just ties together. And now somehow goes from San Francisco all the way to LA and is following Charles Manson. Not buying it, not even a little bit. And then you start to look into Sharon Tate. And again, you're gonna have to do this yourself because you got a computer or your phone or whatever you're listening to my podcast right now. You should pause it and you should look this up as I go along because it's very interesting. And someday I'm going to do a rumble and just show the pictures and things like that. I have a TikTok, so I do a little brief three-minute pictures and story time. But here, I'm going to try to explain it the best I can. So you find, you look back, and you, and again, I don't think they realized the internet was going to bite them all on their fat lies. So you look back, and you Google Sharon Tate and her sister, and you'll find one family picture that pops up when the girls were little and it's their mom and two girls okay and the two girls you will then see in the future you will see patty tate um all over media after supposedly sharon tate dies okay so there's the two girls they're pictured when they're young they're pictured together at um patty's wedding but here's the kicker Here's the real kicker. All of a sudden, Patty dies of cancer in 2000. And a f about a year before that, out pops this, this middle sister named Deborah, who looks just like Sharon, who I, who I totally believe is Sharon. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because when I went to her Instagram page, Deborah Tate, all the, all the pictures are of Sharon. Every single one. So... Why would you post any of yourself? You know what I mean? And then she has one picture of her and Patty. It says my sister and Patty. So she's now pretending she's Deborah. Now it gets even weirder. If you Google Deborah Tate, you'll find no childhood pictures, nothing. Um, you won't even find like a, a Wikipedia thing on this lady. But you'll find it on Patty. You'll find it on Sharon. What you will find um, on Deborah is her all of a sudden showing up on Getty Images after Sharon Tate supposedly died in the 1970s. She's like Arnold Schwarzenegger playing chicken naked and all this stuff. So why do we never hear about Deborah Tate? Why was she not at the funeral? That's another thing. Getty Images. Look that up. You can search anything you want. Any movie star, any picture they've ever taken. And they have pictures of Roman Polanski the mom and the left behind daughter at her funeral. There's no other daughter. There's no no daughter. And then all of a sudden this Deborah pops up. She starts writing books and Charlie Manson starts contacting. Like it's just too much, too much. So now my question is, why are they one that, okay, if she didn't really die, did everybody else who, you know, like, what part of the story is true or not true? Like, it's so bananas to me. And then you get really down into it and you find out it's probably likely a whole drug thing, a whole drug cartel. And I'm going to play a quick clip from um, Zena's ex-husband, Nicholas, who wrote many books, hung out with Charles, was pretty good friends with him before Charles died. And he got to know him because of the music scene because he was interested in Charles Manson's music. And then it you know grew into interviews and books and things like that and he's not unlike this other guy who wrote helper skelter which we'll go back to that um didn't make millions and millions of dollars off these books 
but they're very detailed and very good and he has several interviews and they're just interesting however i did order one because it was i want to read it it was written in the 1980s on i think amazon when i went to go buy because it's not printed anymore it was like almost five hundred dollars i found a copy in thailand for like 60 bucks it was almost 100 after shipping and when it gets here i will be praying for the satanist and i will be pleading the blood of jesus over that book before i read it and probably anoint it with some oil as well because it is written by somebody who believes in satan and i don't like that but i'm gonna read this book because it's it's juicy okay so let's listen to what he says real quick about um all this you know, there is nothing intrinsically interesting about these crimes. They are exactly like the Wonderland murders. They're just another grubby... I mean, they're mysterious because they've been so covered up. What is interesting about them is the degree of powerful people who have spent decades concealing what happened uh, and not doing a very good job of it. You know, not, not it's not a masterful conspiracy. It's a bunch of different people protecting their ass with different vested interests, but not all working together and sometimes working against each other. As I point out in the book, it wasn't this grand Illuminati conspiracy. It's actually pretty flimsy. And if you take a little time, you can quickly look through the lies. So Manson was raised in the system and probably as he testifies to be beat into submission to do whatever he's told at this point, you know, I mean, he's reportedly in all these, um, movies that this guy, that guy, why can't I think of his name right now? Kenneth Anger. He's in a lot of like porno movies that Kenneth Anger recorded. Uh, Kenneth Anger's re linked to pretty much every evil satanic movie, um, underground. I think he's did a lot of like snuff films, which if you don't know what that is you should look it up because it's terrible um yeah this that guy was no good and he just recently passed away so let's get a little insight on this helter skelter book so it's turned into movies you know people that like my mom's age born in the 50s all think charles manson it, i mean they believed what they were told on the tv including the moon landing and and they their narrative lived on I've learned a lot about Helter Skelter. It was always confusing me, and I've, I've finally figured it out. So this guy, Bugalosi, B-Bug, like a bug, B-U-G-L-I-O-S-I, he basically became famous from this Charles Manson case. And not only did he become famous, he wrote Helter Skelter, the book, who like started this whole lie of Charles being programmed to start this race war when... As far as I know, I don't even think, I think everybody that was killed was white. So I don't even know how he tied this in there, but they, they love doing the race war, as I said before. And so this Bugalusi, um, he, he's the one who started Helter Skelter and, um, made a billions of dollars off of it. Charles Manson, if you, he has ever asked about it, rolls his eyes at Helter Skelter. He's like, that is just the media lie. Now I get it. Now I finally understand why Helter Skelter is so stupid and what helter skelter means i'm gonna let them tell you out of their own mouth again this is an interview i will put in my um description box and you can hear all the ways they just old tactics that they still use today where 
you know, get people arguing and back and forth, shouting from the crowd, who I think now looking back, these people look like plants <laughs> asking these questions. So in this particular talk show from the 1990s, you're going to have Sandra Good, who supports Charlie Manson. This other guy who had been interviewing him for about three years at that point. And um, the attorney who put him away, Bugalusi. And Patty Tate, the sister, the younger sister. So there was Sharon and Patty, and then Deborah pops up in the middle of nowhere, and she's, yeah, anyways. So here's a little clip from what he's asked about Helter Skelter. So let's just see what he says. What was the theory of Helter Skelter? What was that about? The theory of Helter Skelter is that Manson was trying to ignite a race war between blacks and whites. He thought by killing these people and framing the black man, it would turn the white community against the black community. There'd be this all-out war, which he called Helter Skelter. So he caused the L.A. riots said, in Watts, right? He said that during the war, during the war, he was going to take his family to the bottomless pit in the desert, a place he derived from Revelation 9. Uh, he said, we're he says, we're going to grow to a size of 144,000 people, the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, referred to in Revelation 7. He said the black man was going to win this war. It was their karma. It was their turn to take over. They'd been stepped on by the white man for centuries. But he said the black man would never know how to handle the reins of power because he said black, he only knows what white he's told him to do. So he said they'd have to turn over the reins of power to those white people who had survived Helter Skelter, i.e. Charles Manson and his family. That he said, we'll come out of the bottomless pit. And quoting Manson, we'll send Blackie on his way to picking cotton, and we'll take over the leadership of the world. That's a fantasy. So, you so, would have to be psychotic to believe yeah. that. None of those people were judged psychotic. This is what he told his, his killers. No, this is what he told no, his they killers. They might have been kicking that yeah. fantasy around. At These the are ranch. the people that killed for him. You, you weren't no, around. They they killed These are the people him. that killed, they killed for him. They, killed they didn't for do anything. They didn't do anything unless he How do you know this? He I didn't just permit thought, them to do anything unless he knew about it and gave his consent. I'll tell you Nothing. something. Not, no, that's night. not true. At I'll tell night, you something yes. else. I just heard a tape of the recent parole hearing for Bruce Davis, and he said you might have done a good job. The representative from the DA's office at that hearing said you might have done a good job of selling the helter-skelter motive to the jury, but that nobody in the DA's office believed that. No. Okay, before we get deeper into this Charles Manson rabbit hole, let's talk about what's publicly... Uh, available to read and one of those things is you find out on Wikipedia that Charles Manson was on on parole so you get out of prison you're in there half your life since you're 10 years old you're very much in the system you're not going to just get released right not only did he get released he got sent to San Francisco now let's talk about his parole officer because it's about to get real, guys. It's about to get real. Okay, so I'm going to now try to find this book, but this book is called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. How I came across this book is I was researching his parole officer because he kept being mentioned in this Wikipedia thing, and we all know Wikipedia's half truth, half lies, right? They just take in, delete, put in whatever they want, whoever pays them. So... When I found out that there was this book written about this parole officer, I said, oh, I got to go find it. So I found an article. It's on the bookforum.com. And it has this book. This book was written by Tom O'Neill with Dan Pipenbring. So I'm just going to read you a few little clips from this article. So first it says... Um, 
Tom O'Neill, throughout his journalistic epic chronicled in chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. What begins as a routine assignment for Premier Magazine, a 13th anniversary story about the murder of Sharon Tate, goes cockeyed when research sites pointing to cover-ups. Deadlines come and go. Premier kills the story. And the once prolific journalist sets out to compulsively quest to understand the discrepancies in the investigation and the trial of the Manson family. <clears throat> so it says the years go into months, his career is sideline, he's a half a million dollars in debt, and he came across what I just came across. Um, there's the official story that the public knows that the media poured out, so I don't even have to really go over that, but we've talked about it in this podcast and the one before that I did about Charles Manson, where I found out uh, he wasn't the murderer I thought he was. So he says that um, O'Neill's major foil throughout the chaos is Bogolosi, that the attorney that we've talked about in this podcast, his own book, Helter Skelter. So when he wrote that book, he canon canonized his own trial arguments, right? And so as time went on, he wrote another book called Reclaiming History. This is a 1,600-page attack on the Warren Commission's critics. So this guy's just a scumbag. And to Bugalosi, conspiracy-minded authors were the worst of them all. And we all know conspiracy came around with JFK. The major of them knowingly misleaded their readers by lies, omissions, and deliberately distorting the official record. The, the one the CIA wants you to know. So, um, we, I like this little comment too. It says, while the official narrative of JFK's death is that it was brought on by a lone assassin for the Tate and LaBlanca murders, it's that a team of assassins were ordered by a lone orchestrator. Okay, so here's where it gets a little interesting, guys. Uncovering documents and talking to more people leads O'Neill to a litany of discoveries that can, cannot be ignored. And I'm going to spell this name. S-H-A-H-R-O-K-H. Shara. And then H-A-T-A-M-I. Hatama. Tate's personal photographer admits to O'Neill that he learned of the murders by telephone from an intelligence agency named Reeve Whitson. W-H-I-T-S-O-N. 90 minutes before the police were even called to the scene. Whitson and Bugalosi then coerce Hateman's testimony by threatening him with deportation. Okay, that's real nice. A deputy DA disclosed that he had orders from above to keep Manson's name out of Bugalosi's trial. A month before Manson was charged, O'Neill fi finds sheriff interviews with witnesses that were withheld from the defense team and detectives who insist that important evidence was destroyed by their superiors. He even learns of a taped confession describing murders that were never discovered. But the L.A. District Attorney's Office seizes the tapes before he can hear it. At what point does governmental incompetence strain, strain cruelty? In Helter Skelter, Bugalosi maintained that the misdated warrant pervaded an August raid on the ranch, SPHN Ranch, yielding indictments. But O'Neill finds the warrant to be impeccably written and also to reveal that the police had an informant at the ranch and had carried out reconna reconnaissance flights beforehand. <laughs> Although the raid w 
the largest California history at that point yielded seven stolen cars, minimal arsenal, and four credit cards dropped out of Manson's own pockets. No one even contacted his parole officer. A week later, at another arrest, Manson was charged with marijuana possession and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. When O'Neill finds the deputy DA who signed the order dropping that charge, the guy denies his involvement and hangs up. The most, this is this is where it gets into the the murders over here in California. The most unsettling implications, though, precede the crimes. In 1967, Manson's San Francisco parole officer, remember this name, Roger Smith, a criminology PhD whose parole responsibilities suddenly dropped from 40 clients to just one, Manson. Although Manson was repeatedly arrested, Smith never revoked his parole. In the mid-1968, after one arrest made the newspapers, Smith's supervisors tried to step in but was overruled by the head office in Washington, D.C. Subsequently, Manson and his followers often visited Smith at the Height Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where, wait for it, here it comes, where Smith was running something called the At Tamine, A-M-P-H-E-T-A-M-I-N-E, research project. You know I'll be looking into that. A study of the role that drugs played on psychotic violence. Hmm. So now Manson's involved in MKUltra since he's 10. He gets out of prison just to be controlled by parole officers who are involved with the CIA, who are involved with violence okay are we are we following the the thing oh and the murderer the most popular murder of all time pregnant nine-month-old pregnant Sharon Tate who's now holding hands in Getty pictures with Roman Pulowski her husband at the times now wife yeah it's one big happy family over there and they all worship we know who and it ain't the same God that we do if you worship the God of the Bible Jesus. Oh, this is crazy, guys. I mean, I my mind keeps getting blown every single day researching this case. It's like the it's, it, and that's why this guy lost a half a million dollars doing it and writing this book. I should just buy it because it's probably exactly what my podcast has been talking about. So anyways, um he is now getting LSD from and they're from his own parole officer and now is somehow sent to the same city that Anton LaVey the Satanist lives and now is meeting Susan Atkins who is doing vampire movies in Anton LaVey's um, cult. So, yeah. I Can we say set up? Someone was getting set up and it wasn't Susan Atkins because she was... You know, her mom died. Supposedly, she became a stripper. And I'll read you her own testimony out of her own book about her and Anton LaVey because it's very telling. Now, apparently, Susan Atkins gave her life to Jesus and wrote some other books. And her last one, her last husband wrote, and it's about um, how Helter Skelter is a big lie as well. I, I don't really know how Susan... She probably is blackmailed like the rest of them, but she spent the rest of her life in jail. So she obviously 
really, I mean, she really killed somebody apparently, but she said she didn't, she said she was high on acid and doesn't really, who knows? She could have been mind controlled too. Who knows? But, um, so where was I reading this? Cause you guys got to hear all this on this. So they fit, they went to that research project study, um, that played the psych psychotic violence case. So they're giving people LSD to see the psychotic violence. Also, there was Dr. Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, Jollyon, J-O-L-Y-O-N, and they would call him Jolly, and that is so funny because I got in a fight with a Dr. Jolly once over vaccines. Okay, uh, West, a former MK Ultra researcher. There it is, guys. Bingo. <laughs> Who specialized in hypnosis and implanting false memories. Wow. Okay. I hope your minds are blown as much as mine right now because I need to go to bed and instead I'm reading you what I'm just found right now. West O'Neill learns that the doctor attending Jack... Oh, it gets bigger, guys. West O'Neill learns was the doctor attending Jack Ruby when he suffered the psychotic break in Dallas jail cell. <laughs> so Jack was probably dosed with some LSD. Wow. When not in the office, Wes was running a laboratory disguised as a hippie crash pad. I keep saying wow because I'm blown away. I should probably read this first and then come back to y'all. But let's do it together. For research funded by the Central Intelligence Agency. You're not going to like this, O'Neill writes to his agent, already years into the rabbit hole with his research on the Manson murders. But I think the JFK assassination is involved and the CIA's mind-controlled experience, experiments. Okay, so now that we have this link, hopefully you're getting these characters in your head. So Charles spends half his life in prison. He gets out. He purposely gets sent to San Francisco, Berkeley area, gets put with the CIA mind control program doing LSD, giving LSD, never getting arrested for doing the LSD, gets put with Anthony Levine's Satanist gal, Susan Atkins, who is in prison for murder when she goes and says, oh, Charles Manson told me to go kill. I was in his cult and he told me. To... No, the cult she was in is called the Illuminati New World Order, in my opinion. Maybe not. But she definitely was part of Anton, Anton LaVey. So let's talk about Anton LaVey and how they met. This is from Susan's book that she wrote from 1977. A lot of things you can find in books, y'all. And um, she named this book The Child of Satan, Child of God by Susan Atkins. It was a slow afternoon, and I considered my first 30 minutes routine as merely a warm-up for the wilder things to come with nightfall. I was just finishing when Mr. Garnet, the owner, walked in with a man I had not seen before. The room was quite dark, but the afternoon sunlight splashed through the swinging doors behind them. The man seemed to be dressed entirely in black, his face and the top of his head, bald head, were extraordinarily pale white. Garner and the stranger walked toward me. Sharon, my boss said as I reached for a wrap and moved towards the side of the stage. Sharon, I'd like you to dance one more number. But I just finished, Mr. Garnet. I know, sweetheart, he smiled, but I'd like for you to do one more number for Mr. LeVay here. This is Mr. Anton LeVay. I smiled at the man. His gaze was intense as I'd ever seen. Even though his mouth was smiling, his eyes seemed to be black and glistening. It's important, Sharon, Garnet said. You can stretch 
your break a bit afterwards. Okay. I walked over to Tommy, the bartender, and told him to put on my favorite record. I might as well give him the give him the works, I mumbled to Tommy. The intensity of the stranger's black eyes deepened as he watched my movements. A smile curled about his lips. I slipped on into one of my f- fanciest about Sharon King, the dancer's the sequence, long-legged, full-breasted movie Scarlet, the Broadway queen. The music penetrated the lower depths of my abdomen up into my chest cavity, and it possessed me. Okay. Garnet motioned to me, motioned me to the small table where he and Mr. LeVay were seated. She's one of my best girls, Mr. LeVay. Do you think there's a part for her in your production? Hello, Sharon. LeVay's voice sounded as though it were an echo chamber. That was very good. He turned to Garnet. Yes, yes, she'd be very good for the vampire role. Vampire role, I asked silently. Garnet turned to me. You see, Sharon, Mr. LeVay has agreed to stage one of his productions here at the club, a witch's Sabbath, topless and all, and I think it could be fun for you if you're interested. What's a witch's Sabbath? I asked, looking for Mr. Garnet, and then back at the bald-headed man. LeVay threw his head back and gave a barking sort of laugh. It's a time, my dear, when the witches worship their leader, Satan. It's a bit marvelous ceremony. It will be very colorful for your club. It's a bit out of the ordinary. I shrugged. It sounds, I thought, I th- it sounds, it sounds it. I thought it was weird, but I might be the trick to launch my career. Sure, Mr. Garnet wants me in it. He's the boss. Good, good. LeVay rubbed his palms together. But what about costumes and all? Mr. Garnet, I asked, trying to understand the the thing, the, the, trying to understand the thing better. Don't you worry about those details, LeVay interrupted. You won't need much to wear. Besides, we'll be having a meeting at my house to discuss these matters. It will all work out. He turned to Granite. I think she'll be excellent, and she will also be good for the witches in the torture scene. Torture scene? Again, I only spoke to myself. It's been nice meeting you, Sharon, LeVay said to me, turning to walk away. I know you'll find this most interesting. I was near exhaustion the next night. The men in the crowd demanded more of me than I was able to form. They seemed to want explicit sex acts, not merely free dancing, by a nearly naked young woman. They, they equated dancers with hookers. Jeez, poor things. I welcomed Garnet's high sign to cut my last number short and come to his table. Sharon, he said, I know tomorrow's your day off, but I'd like you to ha- have you join the other selected girls with me in going to Mr. LeVay's house. Now, I've just started to wonder as I'm reading this to you guys. Do you think the selected girls that he got from his strip club are Charlie Manson's quote-unquote followers? Hmm. Because we know Sharon was. Just throwing that out there. He wants to fill us in on the witches' Sabbath and black magic we got to start preparing. Black Sabbath. That's another creepy band that you shouldn't listen to. Why his house? I was still uneasy about LeVay. It's all part of Satan's worship routine. You you know anything about that? My silence spoke for itself. Everyone has his own hustling going. Garnet said, LeVay is the Satan thing. He calls himself the high priest of Satan. He's fully-fledged honcho and that stuff. His wife is a full-fledged witch. 
they have Satan church in their home. It's a big thing around here. You're kidding. You mean they really worship Satan? It's not just for show? Hell no. They, they really mean business. Of course he grinned. They put on a really good show too. It's a good show business. And that's what I need right now. Something to get us out in front of the other clubs. We can be the hottest thing on the strip. He paused, looked first at his drink in his hand, and then in my face. His mouth was set. So I need you to come with us tomorrow. We'll leave here at 3 o'clock. All right, Mr. Garrett, but only because I need a job. I don't go for the Satan stuff. He laughed. Neither do I, but business is business. We turned the corner. There was no mistaking LeVay's house. He sat in the middle of the block, an empty lodge. Each side of the house was wholly black. Not one bit of white or other color showed. Even the curtains were black. Wow. One of the girls wheezed softly. This is weird, I said. Look at the lawn, Garnet said. It's all weeds and dirt. He was right. Nothing of any beauty seemed to be growing around the two-story black monster. What a place for Halloween, one of the girls said. We all laughed a bit too loudly. When I stepped out of the car, I was actually shaking. Mr. Garnet, I asked weakly, are we really going into that house? Ah, oh, come on, Sharon. If you don't believe in black magic, nothing can hurt you. Don't be afraid. That's a lie. I wasn't convinced. I don't believe the other girls were either. Garnet reached for the doorbell. I expected a gong or a howl or something. It was an ordinary ding-dong. The door opened, and there stood LeVay, all in black, his powdery white skin glowing. I felt sick at my stomach as I walked past him. Isn't it weird? This is just my little side note here. How you verbally get sick when you're around that type of evil. His smile was sickly, I thought. Then I froze in my steps straight ahead at the far end of the entrance hall was a human skeleton in a glass case. Oh, it seemed to have the same sickly smile as LeVay. This is all, uh, this is all the horror movies rolled into one, I thought. What am I doing here? I wonder if I'll get out of here in one piece. Please come right into the living room, LeVay said with a refined politeness. His manners were exaggeratingly excellent. My stomach sickness immediately deepened. The first object to attract my eyes was the living room was a huge black grand piano. That was okay, but right beside it stood a stuffed full-grown wolf, and on top of the piano itself was a stuffed raven. The fireplace mantle held a large stuffed owl. LaVey and Garnet launched immediately into the discussion of the witch's Sabbath, but I had trouble maintaining concentration. The decor of the house was beyond my imagination. I examined the stuffed animals and found myself shivering. Their eyes seemed alive. The Maypole dance is a fertility dance, LaVey's voice penetrated my consciousness for a moment. I smiled and felt a giggle inside. I played that all the time when I was a kid. I thought, how come I'm not pregnant? The giggle choked inside of me as I caught a glimpse out of the corner of my eye with some, someone descending in the staircase in the hallway. It was a woman with the longest hair I'd ever seen. It was black as it could possibly be and hung at least three feet below her shoulders, full and thick. And at first I thought it must be a wig, but it was real. Ah, my wife, said LeVay, rising. Hello, everybody, the woman said softly and seductively. Her manners were as impeccable as her husband's. She stood for a minute, smiling warmly at everyone, and then said, Would you girls like to come in the kitchen with me? 
with me, I'm going to prepare some coffee. Yes, ladies, why don't you go with Miss LeVay while we finish up the details? But we'll be finished soon, and I do want you to stay for our evening service. Things will come a lot clearer to you when you see it firsthand. We all look quickly at one another. I spoke first, and my voice was not particularly steady. I'm afraid I won't be able to stay, Mr. LeVay. I hope you won't be offended, but I don't believe in the devil and... LeVay interrupted me with a wave of a hand and a wide smile across his face, white face. But Sharon, we don't believe in God either, but that doesn't mean he isn't real. I only shook my head and followed the others into the kitchen. His remark left me speechless, but my first sight upon walking into the large, quite ordinary kitchen changed that. Through a full glass of black wall, I could see a real lion in the yard. He was huge, rather mangly looking. But he gave a loud roar as he saw us enter the room. I wonder how many freaking people he fed to that lion. That's too much, I said, barely audibly. What kind of place is this? I added under my breath. I backed out of the kitchen and retreated to the living room. Mr. Levea interrupted. I'd like you to excuse me, please. I'm not feeling too well. I turned to Garnet. Mr. Garnet, I think I better leave now. I'll be your vampire and witch, but I must be going now. Sharon, Levea's voice was gentle, but a smile was still strange. You've only just arrived. Won't you please stay? I'm holding services this evening. There will be special secret rites, and I'm sure you would enjoy it. It isn't often that I invite an outside guest into these rites. I looked right into his eyes momentarily, but I couldn't withstand his gaze. No, thank you, Mr. LeVay. I hope you won't be offended, but I was raised to worship God, not the devil, and I must leave now. Garnet apparently recognized the urgency and decided against getting tough with me. I wonder if that was her pimp. Okay, Sharon, you take the car and we'll get a cab later on. He walked me to the door and out to the car. You'll be all right. Yes, I stopped beside the car. I'm sorry, Mr. Garrett, but my imagination must have been working overtime. I had visions of somehow being sacrificed and all that. Besides, I'm tired and I need to go to bed early tonight. Looking back at the scary black house, I wasn't sure I'd be able to go through with LeVay's plans. But then again... What other course did I have? I look into my two-inch long false fingernails painted brilliant red and my face was something special as I looked up into the mirror. It was eerie, milky white, broken by bright red lipstick that matched the color of the fingernails by, by seemingly sunken blue-black eyes expertly twisted upward at the outside corners. Grotesquely exaggerated cat eyes, jet black hair framed and all, I was a perfectly sexy vampire, ready for my casket, lying at the center of the stage. Using care because of my fingernails, I reached into my big black handbag and fished out a pill. I wonder where she got the pill at. Rehearsals had gone well. We were ready for the weirdest show on the strip, but I knew I'd never be able to get in that casket for real without being stoned. So I popped the acid tab into my mouth and carefully avoiding any lipstick smears. So they're doing acid at these rituals, too. As as the end of the production neared, I laid inside the casket. I remembered very little of the show. I had shaken several people with the reality of my performance when I had risen from the casket and pointed a long blood red fingernail at the audience and marked them as my next victims. Gas from both the males and females had sounded all around the club, but as I lay there, I fancied the idea of being dead and still hearing all the sounds around me. 
I heard everything, the footsteps, the breathing, the sighs, the audience. But I'm dead, I thought. It's so pleasant. I'm outside of my dead body. I'm a spirit. I can see and hear everything. I'm dead, but I'm really alive. I lay in the casket so long that I missed the curtain call by five minutes. I just didn't want to get out of it. The audience went wild over the performance. Garnet had himself a hit. I was convinced he had the whole lot more than he realized. But the night's success spelled trouble later. Gary, my current lover of about three weeks standing, lay quietly in bed as I entered the room. I was still stretched tight from my acid trip and sat down next to him. You're awfully quiet, Gary. Is there something the matter? I don't like what's happening to you, Sharon, he blurted out. This whole thing that you're into at the club is crazy. It's changed you. All the rehearsals, I've watched you change. I don't understand, I said softly, not wanting to get into hassle. I haven't changed. Yes, you have, he said sharply. It's hard to describe, but something's happened to you. When you play your auto harp, for instance, it's creepy. There's a strange sound to it, and when you sing with it, it's like something far out from somewhere else. I persisted with my soft approach. Ah, come on, Gary. You're imagining things. It's just a job. There's nothing to that black magic stuff if you don't believe in it. Relax, babe. Please, Sharon, baby, get out of the show. You don't need the money. We can live dealing dope. You don't need this stuff. Gary was getting to me, and the room started to close in. I'm going out for a while, Gary. I'm really wired for the acid I dropped tonight. You go to sleep. I'll be back. I picked up my harp and walked out into the street, throwing the gray cape over my shoulder. The night was foggy. I walked along quietly for several minutes and then began to strum the harp softly. I tripped out again, and it was a little fairy playing my music. I sat down under the window and played softly for the whole neighborhood. Strangely, no one bothered me. It was dawn when I walked back to the apartment and found a note from Gary. I saw immediately that, he, that his things were gone. Sharon, the note read, I love you too much to sit and watch you lose yourself to LeVay. Goodbye. I sat quickly and sadly strumming my harp and humming. The show was a smash hit along the strip. Garnet had scored big, but the witch's Sabbath and my total sellout to LSD, marijuana, hashish, and to sex with virtually any attractive man landed me in the hospital for four months. I was half dead from gonorrhea and had completely physically broke down. So, if that happened to her before she met Charlie Manson, I have a hard time believing she was some brainwashed, innocent young girl that got wrapped up in Charlie. There's way more to this. Way more to this. Well, as normal, I have a lot more I have to say about this, a lot more I want to play on this, a lot more interviews. But we're already at 50 minutes. So I think I'm going to end it here for today. And we will do a quick summary next week of everything we talked about and try to just figure this out together a little deeper and just hear all the lies that were pushed and um, more just interviews. And I'm going to end it here with this clip that really hit me today from Charles Manson. Be in prison at all? Should you have been in prison? Well, see, starting with prison was originally started as a farm. And if you liked the person that came in your courtroom, you gave him another chance to be reborn and enter into a right way of life. Prison was not built to punish people. It was built to help.
peace officer. But sadistic ding-dongs got in there and wanted to make it into be the shadows of what they thought. And the incompetent and the inadequate need to punish someone so they feel better. So it's like in reform school, they used to lay me down and beat me with leather straps so I couldn't walk. And I used to think, what did I do wrong? And for years, I would think that I, I was wrong, that I did something wrong, and then I seen it wasn't that I did anything wrong. They beat me, so they show the next kid now what not to do. So, you know, in other words, like, prison is the mind. Most of the people that work in the prison are more in prison than the people they've got in prison. Let me ask you about your life now in, in prison. What What is it like here for you? You've been in a lot of prisons. Is this uh, better, worse, the same as all the rest? I told you in L.A. I've been dead for years. I'm dead in everything you people think. Mm -hmm. you know, in Petersburg in 1952, I spent a year in the hole because I wouldn't say yes, sir, to somebody that gave me no respect. I gave them no respect. I kicked everybody out of the kitchen, and I whipped the lieutenant, and I hit the captain in the head with a bucket. And they said that this is no little kid that this is a devil, and he sent me to the penitentiary at 17 years old. If you hadn't grown up institutionalized, as you said, since you were 10 years old, uh, what do you think would be different now for you? Well, I haven't grown up, right. and I don't think I will. All right. Well, if you hadn't spent all that time in prison from the age of 10 on, how do you think Father God, I just pray that the people listening realize that we are in this crazy war, a narrative war, a, you know, war of our minds, a war over the truth, a war over our sanity. It's just not cool right now, the way the world's going, but you are so good and you know how to fix all things and you are in control. You don't need chaos to bring order. You are order, and you will fix the chaos, Lord. I just pray as we go through this journey together, me and my podcast friends, that we just turn to you every step of the way. Every single time we get down or we get confused or we don't understand why people are so evil and act so good, 
just like what Charles Manson went through his whole life or being treated like this, a dog. And all he cared about was this earth you put him on. And it's just so sad what happened in his life. And I pray that doesn't happen to anybody else ever again. It's just terrible. And it just makes me question all the narratives we've ever been fed from Scott Peterson to everything else, Lord. So if there's other lies out there or people sitting in prison that didn't do a darn thing are accused of it because of the media, I pray, Lord, that you show the truth and that the truth will set them free. And if there are people running free that should be in prison because they are true criminals, let the true justice happen, Lord. Protect all of our families. Protect me and my family as we just try to live these these last few years out. It's been very challenging and very hard for a lot of people, and I know you know that. Anyways, I love you, Lord. I love you guys out there listening. I pray that you all are blessed. Until next time.